Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Meredith. This episode features expert answers to your questions on PrEP and cisgender women. I'm joined by Dr. Oni Blackstock, Founder and Executive Director at Health Justice in New York, New York, and Dr. Whitney Irie, Assistant Professor at Boston College Department of Social Work in Brighton, Massachusetts. For the full online educational program, including video roundtables, downloadable slides, and other podcasts in the series, please visit the link in the show notes. Now let's get started. We've had a number of questions from participants and we'll do our very best to get through as many as we can. I'm going to start right here. First, a question from Latoya and they ask, I think this is regarding the goals frameworks. I'm going to point this question to Oni. How can clinicians or healthcare professionals make these questions less intimidating for patients when they're giving that sexual history? Yeah, I mean, I think what happens often is that we as providers feel uncomfortable asking some of these questions and then often project this onto our, our patients. So it just makes a very uncomfortable situation. So what I recommend is just starting maybe with just picking like one question that you practice, like every time you're with a patient, you know, for many of our patients um, who are coming in, who we're not seeing, even we see those, even those who we see regularly, we're going to want to sort of get, you know, updates around sort of sexual history, sexual health. And so again, like just say, I'm going to try out that, tell me a little bit about your sex life question every time someone comes in. So I think it's just sort of like building our muscle for getting comfortable with asking these questions. And then also with, you know, just sort of leaving space both time-wise and just in terms of like effect effectively, like for our patients to share, you know, what their experiences are or what their concerns might be or their worries. So I wouldn't try to like take everything on. So maybe just starting with that preamble, like I talk to all my patients about their sexual health because this is an important part of overall health. I also want to answer any questions that you might have. Tell me a little bit about your sex life. What brings you in? What concerns you might have? And just start from there. And then you can go back to the goals framework and sort of add in some of those other components. So I would, I would just start there and just getting the practice in with patients. Thank you. Our next question is from Emily. And Emily says, I find that many providers are so pressed for time. So helping to add this to an appointment within 15 to 20 minute time frame can be really challenging. So I'm going to point this question to Dr. Ari. What can we do for those that are afraid to take up time to bring up prep during these appointments? What are some strategies that you found helpful? On the research side, we know that being very intent on normalizing and integrating it into the care um, flow in the in the clinical care routine is something that can help really address that barrier to implementation, which is time optimization. What does it look like to actively integrate these questions into your general health care discourse with your clients? And I think that it takes practice. I would venture to say, I don't have the data for this, but there, there, there may be a researcher who was attending who may have it, that when contraception came on the landscape, I'm sure providers were just like, how are we going to talk to all of these, you know, our patients about all of these contraception options during the time that we have, you know, we're pressed for time. And over time, it became normalizing, integrated into care for, for a lot of providers in various spaces, not just gynecologists, to say, you know, have you considered birth control? What are some, what are some options that might, may work for you? And so I think 
every clinical space is different. And so when you're tapping into what is the culture of care in my clinical space, and you're thinking about how could this discussion and, and addressing this particular healthcare need fit into this flow, that's really what is going to help figure out how can we address the time optimization, you know, challenge that it may present and when it presents itself on what end, is it on the front end, is it on the back end? So taking that time to actively, you know, interrogate and integrate, there's going to be some discomfort. There's going to be some stretching that happens. But with that discomfort and stretching, we can save a lot of lives and we could prevent some, you know, some outcomes that we're trying to avert or we're trying to reduce. And I will say, you know, time optimization is something that I think that we've faced before when it comes to women's health care. And it's something that we can overcome with PrEP if we're really actively intent on addressing it. Yeah, and I just want to add, you know, what one thing you can do is maybe for each patient, like once a year, <laughs> you can say, you know, if you're going to see a patient, maybe you see them several times a year, just make sure one of those, those visits, you're having this conversation, you know, obviously, it's going to be something that's hard to do, you know, every time you see the patient, but it might be helpful, kind of like if they're coming in for an annual exam, particularly if they're coming in for something sexual health related, you know, that's an opportune time to to talk with them about it. But just like, just pick you know, one opportunity, it doesn't have to be every visit, be just once a year, and just try to put that into practice. Thank you both. So I wanted to pivot about um, and talk about some of the PrEP options. I have a question here about on-demand PrEP. And Dr. Blackstock, can you, can you talk about what are the reasons why on-demand PrEP is not recommended for cisgender women? There was belief that in order for PrEP to be effective, we need to see sort of high concentrations of it in the tissues that come into contact potentially with HIV. So, you know, for people involved in anal intercourse, you know, looking at rectal tissue concentration of the medication or its metabolites, and then looking at the vaginal tissue. And so what we know from earlier studies is that it takes longer for those um, levels, those target levels to be reached in the vaginal tissues, vaginal cervical tissues or cervical vaginal tissues as compared to rectal tissues. And so we know that many, most cisgender women are primarily engaging in receptive vaginal sex. And so just doing the two-on-one approach is not going to um, ensure that there is adequate concentration of the medication in the vaginal tissues. So that's why it is not an approach that has been recommended for cisgender women. Thank you. Um, my next question here is from Morgan. And this question I'm going to direct to Dr. Irie. The question is, for non-clinical staff, what are some ways to support provider conversations and continue affirming the decision to go on PrEP with clients once they are in front of them? Non-clinical staff has a significant role in PrEP engagement for all folks. And part of it is really in ensuring that wherever you are within the care space, that you are an active contributor to an affirming environment. We know that stigma is a huge barrier to HIV prevention options across the board, whether it's a pill or whether it's a shot, condoms, anything of that sort. So wherever you are within that clinical care space, look at your policies, your practices, whether they're formal or informal, that may need some time to kind of address, well, how is this inadvertently contributing to stigma? How's the language that we're using affirming or welcoming? And what are some things that we can do in order to improve this space? Because 
sometimes people, cisgender women, and oftentimes Black women enter care spaces with some healthcare trauma, with the desire to ensure that you know, they are ready to advocate for themselves and, you know, they're not sure what to expect. They may be a bit apprehensive or a bit nervous. And this impacts their willingness and their interest or their ambivalence towards very viable interventions like PrEP. And so if you're non-clinical, you have an important role, whether you're the first face that they see, whether you're doing outreach, um, whether you're, your um, role to ensure that the materials are up to date, that they see and encounter in the space. Those are some micro changes that have a macro impact. And I, I think that also, you know, I, it's worthwhile thinking about in your care setting, whether or not there are some components of the prep care, you know, the prep care cycle and prep care process that you all as non-clinical staff can help play a part in, whether that is increasing prep awareness. So are there things that you all can help do in terms of your clinical spaces, you know, interventions and strategies in order to help with PrEP awareness or, you know, in PrEP knowledge or, you know, willingness to come back and actually pick up the prescription. So making those phone calls and following up to see whether or not folks still want the prescription or they're still deliberating. We really all have a role and, you know, depending on the culture of care and the setting that you're in, I, I would highly recommend that that's a conversation that you have with all the folks there, clinical and non-clinical alike. So I hope that was helpful. The next question I wanted to ask is from Zenobia. And this one, Dr. Black, so I was hoping that you could address about how to talk to your patients or clients about side effects with PrEP options like F2C, TDF. How do you do that? Or how do you approach that in a responsible and sensible manner? And of course, we don't want to scare patients away from these different side effects. So how do you approach this? Yeah, and no, I think it's a really good question because we know that like concerns about side effects are a big barrier um, to women potentially starting um, PrEP. So we want to make sure that when we talk to our patients that we are um, addressing any concerns that they have and, and obviously also providing um, useful information that will allow them to um, together in a sort of a collaborative way um, make the best decision for themselves. I think with um, TDF, FTC, so the oral version of PrEP that's um, approved for cisgender women, um, you know, primarily if there's a, a, you know, if people may have a startup syndrome that lasts like three to four weeks, that's kind of more GI symptoms, some nausea, maybe stomach upset, maybe some folks have headache, you know, reduced appetite, but that typically goes away after a few weeks. So we do often tell folks, you know, if you are having symptoms, early on, try to stick in there because they will almost always resolve. So that's one thing that we say. And then, um, you know, obviously there are concerns around kidney and bone health. For, for kidneys, we do, you know, part of the um, screening that we do, the routine screening um, every six months is really checking for um, kidney function. So we're on top of that. And then obviously if there are were underlying issues with bone health, that would have been something that hopefully had been established prior to starting PrEP, enter into a conversation with your patient and figure out sort of risks and benefits, whether um, starting this version of PrEP is, um, it's worth it, the benefits outweigh the risks in terms of bone health. But yeah, just having a conversation with your patients about it. And then for the injectable, the most common um, reactions or side effects folks have are um, injectable um, site, injection site reactions. And those typically resolve pretty quickly and are, and are usually quite tolerable. 
Great, I'm going to move on to a question for Dr. Irie. We have a person that has asked a question. They moved to a small town and would like to know how, how would someone go around talking to a new doctor about PrEP? What would be some of the resources they should consider in that in that situation? Yeah, you know, I a lot of, of PrEP uptake has been attributed to patient led or patient initiated discussions about PrEP, you know, which can be quite unfortunate. And hopefully we can reduce the, the patient burden load with regards to that. So moving to a small town and wanting to engage in PrEP, and how do you start, how do you start the conversation with your provider about it? Well, it's my hope that your provider has some knowledge and awareness of it. I will also highly recommend if it's possible to keep in mind multiple providers that you may be able to see um, because you might receive different type of provider experiences or if their clinics is specifically in towns that are smaller or maybe a certain distance away from larger medical centers. There may be some challenges in finding um, clinics that have the capacity to offer prep care or have the infrastructure, depending on what type of prep that you're seeking, which form of prep that you're seeking. Um, so keep that in mind. But also when coming into that space, I think that it's a, it's a conversation and coming into it with that information that, you know, this is what I'm considering. Here's where I learned about it. Is this something that I can get started on where, you know, in this clinical space? If not, you know, can you refer me elsewhere? And I think that it's a conversation that I'm sure most providers would be willing to engage in and or give you the resources or referral um, in order for you to find an alternative option or alter alternative clinical space. Also, if you are finding it particularly challenge in, challenging in that small town, you might um, consider telehealth and teleprep. And whether or not, you know, there are some teleprep services that can reach are eligible to provide you services where you are in terms of the town that you're in. Um, so those are some options. I couldn't imagine a provider not wanting to either engage you and, and get you started in prep care in that clinical setting or refer you somewhere else. But should you encounter that first, I'm sorry that that would happen. And, but second, I think that Teleprep is very much so real and viable for a lot of different communities who don't have safe access to care. It's a good option to consider. Thank you. We have a couple of questions about pregnancy and the use of PrEP. I'm Dr. Blackstock, so how can you share with us how you would approach the conversation about PrEP for patients who might want to get pregnant, particularly for injectable PrEP? Do you try and steer them away to oral prep or do you offer injectable prep weighing out, you know, risk and benefits? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. Um, and I think it will depend. So we have lots of data on TDF FTC, which is the oral prep that's approved for cisgender women. So we have lots of data in among from clinical trials of PrEP in cisgender women and also of HIV, because these are the medications that are also used for HIV treatment. So we have a lot of data around them, um, their use in women who are trying to conceive, women who are pregnant, sorry, people who are pregnant, people who are breastfeeding at these different stages. They've been exposed as well as their babies exposed to these medications. And overall, what we see is that they're, from this data that we do have, it's very safe. There is less data on the medication that's used for cabotegravir, um, sorry, for injectable prep or just cabotegravir. There's just less, we don't have um, 
the same volume of data that we do for TDF FTC. So I would suspect that more providers might feel comfortable prescribing oral PrEP because we have, you know, a whole history with that that's been available as as PrEP since 2012 and treatment has been available much longer versus um, cabrotegravir, which is more recent. So, you know, I think, you know, just having conversation because, you know, for instance, someone may want to take cabotegravir because they're really struggling with taking an oral medication. And so they may be willing to deal with like the uncertainty around sort of the limited data there is around safety in pregnancy that may sort of like have less weight than than being able to protect themselves, you know, from HIV using a strategy that like works for them in terms of like getting injections every two months. So I think it's really understanding like with our patients sort of like, you know, what are the pros, what are the cons, what are the alternatives, and then having that discussion um, because there aren't always, you know, clear definitive answers. Um, And so that's why it's really important for us to be able to like give our patients like all the information and then sort of work through with them, you know, what may work best, you know, given their specific circumstances, their specific values and preferences. Thank you. There's a number of questions about various strategies to help improve PrEP uptake among cisgender women. Some that are thrown out here, nurse-led PrEP or use of pharmacies. I know we already talked about telehealth can you share either based off of reading the literature or your own firsthand experience in your clinic, what have you seen successful? People have a lot, you know, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of different priorities. You know, HIV um, prevention may not always be at the top of the list. And so because of that, I personally think that in our strategies to increase uptake of PrEP among cisgender women, it's important for us to sort of wrap this into other services and programming that women are seeking out and that they need. And so like having PrEP available like at a multi-service, like one-stop location, I think can be really helpful. So it's like, as we're helping you with getting your housing, as, as we're helping you getting your benefits, like here, let's talk to you about PrEP and we can actually connect you to um, a clinic. So I think it's really just about figuring out just given you know, that women, we have lots of things going on. We're often, you know, caregivers. We have a lot of responsibilities, figuring out how to um, embed prep into sort of overall programming. So I know like, you know, if people are coming in also for like STI testing or HIV testing, that's an opportunity to talk about prep. If they're coming in to, to ask about contraception, that's an opportunity to talk about um, prep as well. So just finding these um, opportunities and then also just making it super accessible for women. So not expecting women to have to come into the clinic to get prep, but maybe if they are, like I've done work with um, women who are using um, syringe exchanges. And so like getting women connected with prep, you know, at places like that or educating about prep, them about prep and connecting them. So, you know, bringing either the navigator to them or actually bringing prep medication to them, I think can be helpful. Oh, I, I don't have too much to add, but I will say that nurse-led PrEP, um, PrEP delivery options are great. Dr. Lauren Osser, they're in um, Ottawa, Canada, and they have something called PrEP RN. And it has been shown, I, I think that she's been doing this work since 2018. It has been very successful in PrEP uptake and PrEP adherence for cis and trans women in the clinics in Canada 
And I know that we have some work happening in the U.S. as well um, along the lines of, of nurse-led PrEP. So for the person who commented about integrating nurse into the PrEP care and PrEP uptake efforts, that sounds great. It seems like it's a very viable strategy. It points to the need to kind of decentralize the point of care um, when it comes to PrEP delivery and look at very diverse provider options um, outside of, of a physician or an MD to be that person to communicate with that. So absolutely. And to echo um, Dr. Blackstock's point, ensuring that it's integrated into the mosaic of care from qualitative interviews that I've conducted, a lot of the women, the, a lot of the Black women, to be specific, didn't want a separate process for engaging in PrEP. I'm already at the doctor. Why aren't we already talking about this here? Why do I have to go over there and have a drone, drop it off on my porch and go to the pharmacy to get this and then an app to do this. You know, I'm already engaged in care on some level. Why isn't it there for me? And I think that it kind of reflects what's happening in the clinical space around what I would say, like, kind of like a hot potato phenomenon where it was like, well, who should be the, what space should be the space that delivers PrEP to people? Infectious disease or, you know, gynecology or family medicine, you know, and it was just this hot potato event where we weren't quite sure who should kind of carry that load and that build out and resonated out with the communities that um, could benefit from PrEP. It's like, well, where should I go and where does it fit? And so I think that now we have an understanding that it can go anywhere and we want to ensure that all sorts of providers and all sorts of folks that are in a clinical space, even those that are non-clinical, are educated and empowered to know that they play a role in helping folks make a very informed decision around PrEP engagement. Great. I have another question from Ashley, who is talking about a situation of of course, not trying to pressure someone into PrEP, but maybe a person with many reasons to take PrEP, but is not ready, doesn't really feel the same to, to start PrEP. Dr. Blackstock, how have you handled these situations? Do you address this every single time you see the patient? How do you frame this conversation? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think first to start with, I always think of my patients as experts in their own sort of experience. Um, and so I would really try to work with them to say, you know, we have to have a whole toolkit of HIV prevention options and PrEP is, is one of them. Like PrEP is incredibly effective and incredibly potent. Um, and I think if there are folks who, for whom it works and it fits into their lives, then that's, that's great. Um, it may not be a good fit for, for everyone. So I think just recognizing that. So we don't think we want to like push or sort of force, you know, what we think is best for our patients onto our patients because they often, they know what's best for them. But I would say, though, that just from previous research, that my previous research, that it, it can take a number of, of conversations. Um, I think in particular for women around PrEP, you know, it may not be like a slam dunk conversation the first time. But I would just say, like, keeping the sort of communication channels open is really important so that you can come back, you know, when you see that patient again and, you know, check in like, hey, you know, just wondering, you know, what other questions do you have? about PrEP? Are there any concerns you have? You know, I'm here if you have any questions. So yeah, I think that would be helpful. So I think it's a balance. Um, and you know, just making sure patients have the information that they need to make um, the best decisions for them and that we are there as, as collaborators with them in that um, decision making. Thank you. Let's shift over to candidates for PrEP in terms of, you know, deciding who is eligible for PrEP. Um, so Christine is asking if there's any type of risk evaluation screening specific for cisgender women that are available. 
I'm not off the bat um, familiar with assessment tools, not to say that they don't exist, but just to say that, you know, we have really great resources, like obviously the CDC guidelines, New York State has really excellent, very comprehensive, wonderful guidelines around PrEP in terms of listing, like who might be um, a good fit for it. I'm like, anyone coming in sort of asking me about PrEP, even if someone's not currently sexually active, you know, understanding what people's future sexual health goals are, what their future intentions are, um, are really important. So I kind of cast like a really wide net, like people who are, um, you know, sexually active, maybe they don't have underlying kidney disease or bone or bone issues, you know, in terms of thinking about oral prep. Yeah. And just, just really cast a wide net, but there are great resources out there that can give folks a sense of who might be, um, you know, a, a good fit for prep. So the next question I had, um, I'll ask to both of you, how have the guidelines impacted rates of PrEP prescription for cisgender women? Thank you, Jacqueline. This is actually very much so um, related to Christina's question. Previously, there were guidelines around that were uh, much more focused on um, certain type of sexual behaviors. And the new guidelines really kind of opened up to folks that ask for PrEP, you know, they should be able to receive PrEP, particularly for those who are sexually active in general. And because of that, and because of those guidelines, everyone is eligible regardless. And, you know, as many of my colleagues have, have shared and stated, if you are sexually active now, if you intend to be sexually active, um, you are essentially eligible to receive PrEP. However, because there were these guidelines before, um, I think in a clinical space, the momentum to kind of change over to the everyone is eligible approach is a little bit slow. You know, there's still a desire among um, providers to have some sort of checkbox so that they can make sure that this person, you know, is the right person to receive it. And in uh, small so hope that providers in that space can kind of walk away from this webinar knowing that if you're engaging in this discussion, hopefully using all or some components of the goals um, framework, it is worthwhile to integrate into those conversations prep. And if they're asking for prep, then they should receive prep care because some of their behaviors, they may not feel comfortable disclosing with you in that space. And some of the indicators that you may find are important may not necessarily be important. There's, a, there's work out there that's being done to look at different type of behaviors and indicators and bacterial STI infections for cisgender women to learn what are those indicators that put cisgender women specifically more at more or less risk. We know that information for men who have sex with men, but not so much for cisgender women. And that work is still being done like decades and decades later, even on a global scale, we, we're not quite sure what those pronounced indicators are for cisgender women. And I share that to say if a woman is entering into a cisgender woman is entering into your clinical space and show some desire or interest, or you are integrating it into your conversation with them, then it's worth, then they deserve to have an opportunity to engage in prep, whether they're in a monogamous relationship. And according to your perception, they are at low risk. They're, they still deserve to have a conversation and be engaged about prep whether or not they're engaging in behaviors that may increase their risk of infection and they're not quite ready or they're ambivalent about PrEP, they still deserve to have a conversation about PrEP. And we have to interrogate our own biases and reluctancy and need for, you know, these checklists and indicators um, in order to get to a space where we know that 
at least starting the conversation and integrating PrEP into just the general healthcare landscape is widely beneficial uh, for cisgender women and honestly will help reduce a lot of the stigma around PrEP and HIV prevention if we're actually actively doing it with great intention. And I totally agree with echoing all of what Dr. Irie said. And just to add, I, I believe the re- most recent data from CDC is that I think 10% of cisgender women who are eligible for PrEP sort of based on sexual behaviors or maybe injection drug use behaviors, only 10% are actually taking PrEP. So there's a huge opportunity um, to really reach women. Um, and one of my colleagues used to always say, you know, PrEP may not be for every woman, but like all women should know about it. So just making sure we're taking a universal education approach and letting all of our, and then also just to say that women are often, you know, the sort of the folks in the communities who are like spread information. So if you educate women about this, they will spread it to their daughters, their friends, their girlfriends, everyone. So just wanted to um, put that plug out there. We just have a couple minutes left. I think I just want to ask one question to the both of you just to end the session. And this question's from Edgar. So what would you say is the best advice that you could provide to these healthcare professionals on how to get more cisgender women on PrEP? And I know you mentioned a ton of other things, but what would be one take on point from this webinar that you'd want to share with our learners today? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, there are very few um, sort of prevention strategies that like are user controlled and PrEP is something that a woman has control of, she can share it with her partner and you know that she's taking it. She can keep that information private and be discreet about it. But it really is um, an empowering tool for women in terms of being able to just protect their sexual health, stay healthy. So I would say that sort of like framing it in that way may be um, appealing or attractive to, to many women. I would say be a gardener, plant the seed. It may sprout this season because they single, it's warm outside, they're ready to mingle. Some people call it hot girl summer. It may not sprout until the wintertime. You know, we don't know, but as a provider, commit to planting the seed. And throughout their sexual seasons, it may sprout. But at least you as a provider have done your due diligence to say, at some point during my clinical encounter, I have been aware of my privilege and power as a physician in this space and shared this information from my mouth to their ears about PrEP. You know, I'm now the gardener. I've planted the seed and I am here for when they make the choice to engage in PrEP, should they want to. Also, when you plant the seed, it also might sprout other type of sowing of the woman in that space. They may go to their network and say, hey, my doctor brought this up. And, you know, what's that about? They may end up Googling it and and things of that sort. You know, women really respect their physicians. People really respect their physicians. And you have an opportunity to be a gardener in that space, plant a seed about PrEP. And at some point during their sexual seasons, it may sprout. That's a great call to action for our providers and clinical staff, um, non-clinical staff alike to, to think about how they can do that in an important way. And can I just say this one other quick thing? Because I saw a comment about provider perception. We know that providers can be huge barriers to women, um, particularly Black women, taking um, or getting access to PrEP. So I think for providers to be aware of um, and any internal any biases that they might have that might be getting in the way of them sharing this information with their women patients, and particularly their Black women patients. Thank you very much to our faculty, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full past 
forward in PrEP, Overcoming Barriers to PrEP Engagement in Principal Populations Program on the Clinical Care Options website. Click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.